You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today I'm with Gareth Thomas, who is running a massive school management system, which is currently being ported over to Flask from a legacy system. Gareth, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. So do you want to start us off by introducing yourself and and letting people know a little bit more about the app that we're going to go over today? Well, hi, I'm Gareth Thomas. I'm the CTO of a uh, school management system in the UK called ScholarPack. By background, I'm actually an electrical engineer who fell into programming uh, by accident, really. And uh, now I spend my life architecting massive systems and um, in various languages. Hmm. Various languages. So do you you want to go over a little bit about uh, what language your application is and what you're working towards? Well, the current current stack is is 100% Python, um, although we have experimented with other things. Um, But... Generally, it's it's Python at this core, but really built around two frameworks. So we have a legacy Zope system, which is the application as was, and we are now building uh, various APIs and front ends in Flask. Nice. So how long has this project been going on? Because Zope is a word I have not heard for quite a while. Um, well, ScholarPack is, I think, 12 years old. I wasn't one of the founders. I was brought in uh, to manage the transition off Zope. So I think 12 years ago, the project first started. And uh, yeah, well then Zope was probably the big framework. I remember when PyCon, uh, you know, 50% of the tracks were Zope tracks as opposed to uh, just Python tracks. Um, but Zope went the way of uh, many things and sort of faded out. Uh, Django came up to replace it because Django probably takes over a lot of what Zope used to do. And we are stuck with a very large install of uh, Zope. And it's done as well. It's got us to 10% of the UK schools, um, hundreds and hundreds of users, uh, managing about 65,000 requests per second at peak times. Jeez, 65,000 requests per second. What, what does that translate to, to like, I guess, daily or even monthly traffic? Oh God, I'd have to work that out. Um, <laughs> uh, I think I'd, it's I think it's millions for sure, right? It's millions of requests. the The interesting thing about our product is we can more or less turn it off overnight because it's for managing schools. So there's only traffic when schools are there. So between ten to nine and half past nine, we get ninety percent of our traffic. Throughout the day, we get some traffic, and then after five o'clock in the evening, we get hardly any traffic at all, you know, to the point where we could sometimes have a server go over and users don't notice. So not only do we have a high traffic site, we have an incredible variance in traffic, which makes balancing the system very interesting. Yeah, that does sound kind of cool. It's kind of like you get the weekends off and a summer break. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, we famously once uh, turned a server off to do maintenance on it, forgot to turn it back on and uh, didn't notice for 12 hours. But and, and no complaints at all, because uh, it was the summer holidays and all the users were off. Uh, we have better monitoring in place now, so that will never happen again. Right. But when it comes to something like that, like summer break, are you really like developing features during that time or no? Like to prepare for the next season? Um, well, it's feature development is ongoing all the time, because you want to be doing feature development when schools are there to look at what you're building and validate what you're building. So the 
the big summer holidays and like at the moment we're on Christmas holiday and then we have the Easter break, that's generally architecture. So you'll be doing big server transformations, um, replatformings, major upgrades during that period because, you know, th- there's no one there. Um, but you want to be rolling the features when there's somebody there to try them out because the worst thing you can do is release this massive product and have people not like it. So you want to be releasing little and often rather than this monolithic release ready for September when all the schools come back. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Now, you mentioned using Flask and and Python there. Uh, What was your thought process behind choosing Flask? Um, We wanted the opposite of Zope. So so the big problem with Zope, um, let's probably take a step back for people who don't know what Zope is. It was like one application to rule them all. So if you got your Zope server, your Zope was your application server, your framework, your development environment, your ORM, didn't really have an ORM, it used SQL methods, and other people would be criticizing my understanding of that now. Um, It had its own templating language called DTML. Uh, So you got this, it was like Django, but more. So you installed it and you have everything. And that really handcuffed us. So we've gone down some technology decisions in that which has resulted in us having this stack as quite inflexible, um, you know, a true monolith of a of a stack. And when me and the uh, lead developer at the time, a guy called Adam Munton, were sat down planning out what to do next, we had a team of Python developers. We understood deploying and building Python, but we definitely didn't want to go monolithic frameworks. So you look around, and then you got Flask, and Flask has nothing apart from a router a templating engine built in, you can strip it out if you want, and then everything else is your own decision. And we wanted to go lightweight. We wanted to go single responsibility services. We wanted to avoid having to bring in huge numbers of dependencies into every single part of our infrastructure. And Flask just sort of seemed to be the logical place to go for that. Yeah, no, I'm on board with Flask as well. It's like, it's so cool that you can just start with this tiny little single app.py file with like, a five-line hello world, or you can grow it out to some crazy system like your school management system. Yeah, although that with that comes its own perils because uh, you have to make sure you have a, a good basic starting point for everyone to work from or every single app ends up being a, a completely different beast. But yeah, it's it's nice. You can you can have what you need. So some of our some of our services have an ORM built in because you no know, using SQL Alchemy because you know, why wouldn't you? Um, but quite a lot of them now don't need database access at all, so we just don't install any ORM into it. It's not even not used, it's just not there. Right, that makes sense. So you mentioned you and a lead developer. How many people are working on this project? Um, so the technology team is, I'm going to count now because we keep changing, I think we are 17 or 18 um, people in the technology part. So that's sort of SQL analysts, DevOps, and developers. Um, the development team sort of full strength is about 10 devs full time. Oh, wow. So with 10 devs and, and growing in the future, I imagine, was that one reason why you wanted to go the microservice approach? Like what caused you to decide to do that other than like it was the total opposite of Zope? I have a unique fetish for microservices. Um, I like the way it, it gives you proper separation of concerns. And because of my background, I'm, uh, I like architecture and architecture is what I, what I worry about. And uh, I've got some good solutions architects and, and lead developers who sort of worry about the code architectures. 
And the nice thing about microservices is you can split out where your responsibilities are. It segregates your blast radiuses. It it allows you to scale independently. And obviously, with our level of traffic, um, cost is a factor. And the ability to independently scale different parts of the system and bring things down and bring things up and release bits independently to avoid downtime in the day and and avoid you know, just because this thing's failed, another thing hasn't failed. Microservices really suit what what we want to do and where we are. That totally lines up and makes sense. Like you have a decent amount of developers on your team, and you're running at such a scale where it's like, you know, if you can save or scale something up independently, you know, makes a huge difference in the end. Yeah, and. When you're at the you know the number of users we have you know say ten percent of UK primary schools use our system, and you know if our system goes down, there are actual impacts. So you can't find out who's in your school. You can't get a chart. You can't get a fire list. So if there's an emergency evacuation of the school, you can't work out who should be there to do a roll call. If somebody breaks a leg, you don't have their contact details for their parents. So uptime between about half eight and 4.30 is absolutely paramount. We can't have any downtime at all. So microservices allows us to have some downtime. So if we, you know, we've got a clubs module. If the clubs module falls over, we don't want that to take over the contacts part of the system. So, you know, this microservice approach allows things to fail, but not affect everything else. And that, you know, really suits the scale we're at now. The original SOAP part of the product is a traditional monolith, and that suited us when we were small. You know, I joined when we were on three, at 300 schools. And then the ease of developer use for a monolith really made sense. But now the pain of the monolith outweighs the developer convenience, and microservices are the way to go. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. So like, what does the development process look like? Let's say you're a developer, you just want to hack on the project. Uh, can you walk us through that? We have the concept of a skeleton. So all of our apps are based off a skeleton app, which is uh, just like a standard layout with um, sort of the, the normal dependencies we have in, along with like the unit test frameworks and everything. So you, so when you start a project, you would pull the the skeleton app, which is maintained along with everything else, and then fork it and then from there, develop your code. So that has the benefit when, if you need to work on any of our internal services, you can pull pull the Git repo for that service and you know where everything is. You know where your tests are, you know how it's going to run, you know how Black works, you know how Flake 8 is going to work, you know what your pre-commit hooks are, you know, you know how to build the containers, you know how to deploy the container because everything's done in exactly the same way. So... A traditional dev working on a project would pull the repo for the thing he's working on. Where possible, we try to mock out the the interdependence. A local dev doesn't require an entire architecture available. Um, We then use Docker Compose to bring up what you need locally. And everybody then is running one or two containers locally, maybe with a database and some other services. you, you hack on that, you do your pull requests through to the development branch. Once development, once you get pushed into the develop branch, it goes into Jenkins, Jenkins does your CI builds and then CI pulls it, pushes out to 
to um, testing. Once it passes testing, it then gets pushed out to do to live straight from Jenkins. Okay. Yeah, we'll get into that whole process a little bit later on. Sorry. Um, but <laughs> it's totally fine. It flowed into what we were talking about. Now, when it comes to the dev process, like I know a lot of folks have emailed me and they're like, you know, uh, why is the application in the course you create, you know, just this monolithic application instead of like broken up into a million microservices? Like it gets pretty tricky when you want to deal, in my opinion, at least when you want to deal with many different services. So like what, what, if, it, what if a developer in your team just wanted to run a couple of them at once locally? Is it just like a bunch of manual process? Like what have you done to tr try to streamline that a bit? So how to explain it? The core of the system is a database. So which is still the Zope database because Zope is still there. And there's, there's some interesting things we've done with that. But at the core is still the database or the, rather there isn't the database. There is a database per school. So we've got about one and a half thousand schools, which means there is about one and a half thousand databases. Um, that means that at the core of this database, around that we have sort of domain defined APIs. So if you want to work on a student, there is a set of APIs which define what a student is. And those are the only things that talk to the student related tables in the database. All the services then talk to those APIs. And that allows us to mock out the API. So when you're programming locally, you can inject using something like Postman your API request into your service. You could almost work with just your service and just inject your APIs as you're developing. When you want to start doing integration tests, you can pull up local version of the API and a local version with some mock data of the database on your local machine. And they are quite lightweight because, you know, they are quite small databases comparatively. So you can very quickly pull up um, basically the three levels of the stack you want. Because although there are several services, you're probably only three levels away at any point from the database. So you don't need that many services talking together to actually work. And we're trying to, as much as possible, remove interdependence between services apart from the service and the API at the center. Right. That makes sense. So when it comes to having one database for each school, so then do you have all of your microservices, then they all use the same database, like the club and contacts and stuff like that? The only thing that talks to the database is the the central API. The, the services running, which are all, which are all Fargate clusters of uh, Docker containers running Flask, um, they are all agnostic to the school. So the request coming in identifies to the service what school they are serving at that point. And then they goes to the API. The API decides what school to return data for based on based on your keys and your credentials. And that then dynamically switches the database connection on the fly. So on every request, it's actually selecting a different connection to a different database. So the same Flask apps are running, but they are switching from request to request between one of 1500 databases. Oh, wow. So was that, um, was that some library that you wrote to deal with like that multi-tenancy? Um, it was, uh, it, it's our own wrapper around, uh, SQL Alchemy's, um, binds. So if you think about SQL Alchemy and you, and this ability to use its binds dictionary to be able to go, this model uses this bind and this model uses this bind. 
we sort of written a wrapper to abuse that in some ways or use it in a in a subtle way um so that the request selects the bind and then the bind gets inherited through the process so when you fire up the service it it understands which binds are available we use things like um we've got you know the databases are split across 10 servers at the moment so there are 150 databases per server more or less yeah but each of those servers has in front of it a PG Bouncer instance to allow connection pooling. And then all the instances, as it gets a request, it connects into PG Bouncer and keeps a persistent connection open. So we have a huge number of persistent connections at any point, but they're sort of aggregated through these PG Bouncer instances to enable us to scale. Right. That's very deep, isn't it? No, that, that's a good amount of detail. Because I, I know like multi-tenancy is such a hard problem to solve, and it always comes back to being so pretty app specific you know there's so many different ways to do it yeah and for us the you know, the obvious solution is to um, namespace the records so have one database and you know, select on a namespace in your, in your record set but because of the nature of the data we hold we definitely don't want to have any cross-contamination of data so the you know, every database has its own credentials every database has its own authentication there all the keys are rotated there's a huge amount of security around how you access that database and the same around the services going down the tree. And that means that this school's data is only held in its own database. So you're never going to accidentally, if you connect to that database, get a different school's data. And it, it really hamstrings us. It's not a nice developer experience. It's really not nice to work with that many databases at scale, but from a, security and a compliance and a warm fuzzy feeling about what we're doing point of view it's it's probably the only way i can see to do it yeah so how does that look like from a developer's point of view are are you like pulling up each school based on like a subdomain and picking the database from that uh, yes so every school gets a unique url um, and then the url maps to a school uuid and the school uuid and then then you each school UUID maps to its own auth database so that your credentials only log you into one school. And then you have, you know, if you need to log into multiple schools, you have multiple credentials. That then pulls back a session key, and then the session key allows you access into the databases. And it we're at the point where it's not just the user that's tied to a school and the database connections, the microservice connections into the APIs are per school. So all of our downstream services are maintaining a key per school to get in. So if I want to connect into school A, I got to have a unique you know, OAuth token in my in my t- tool chain, which I've pulled through from my user to connect to that API. So we have segregated the entire way out the door in terms of school. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a good setup. What is it like when it comes to uh running database migrations on, on 1,500 plus databases? Um, it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, P- uh, Postgres is uh, it's Postgres in the center. Um, obviously, it ha- you connect per database. So we have, have to, we've had to write our own tooling that you give it the migration and then it connects and applies it to every single database. Um, so we, you know, it's, we have a number of workers that go off and they, they just apply it down the chain. Um, 
across each database individually so that the migration takes 10, 15 minutes. And we try to do very small migrations frequently rather than big migrations. Yeah, that would seem terrifying to me if you had to do a large migration on so many databases at once. Uh, yes, but we you know we've uh, our backups are um, intense. We we we're running point in time recovery on all of our database servers, so we can go back to any transaction. We have full um, full transaction logging turned on. Uh, we can tell you exactly what data has changed on any school at any given point by any by what user going back for a year. Um, and we retain snapshots for six months, daily snapshots of all the data. So we, we are fairly good at rolling back if things go wrong because essentially, regardless of everything else, we're a database with some software on the outside rather than, rather than software with a database. The things you just described are like pretty much necessary at that scale. Like It would be so unsafe not to do that. Yeah, and that's dictated why we're in AWS. Um, we're part of a larger group. And the the group philosophy, and interestingly, the entire group is Python, but the the group philosophy has been GCP, GCP Kubernetes, and we couldn't go GCP because uh, SQ, Cloud SQL and GCP doesn't support uh, point in time recovery, and because of that, our entire stack's in AWS because we just can't tolerate a, an environment without point in time recovery on our databases. Interesting. Yeah, it's like the, that lack of one feature just cost them a whole lot of hosting. Uh, yeah, and uh, you can imagine our hosting bill is um, is not trivial, although a rounding error to Google, I guess. But it's um, you know it you know it's just everything else. The the actual from us the the developer experience is probably nicer in GCP because you know, the other half of the group who aren't doing such intense workloads. Um, you see their deployment and you see how they manage their pods and they do all this this um, amazingly hipster Kubernetes stuff. And uh, and you know, we're in AWS. Although, as it happens, the Fargate stuff is actually more suitable for what we do than Kubernetes, I'd say. But again, I'm probably going off on another tangent there. No, it's okay. We'll, we'll definitely get into the Fargate stuff. But uh, before we move on to like the deployment aspect, I'd one last question for you about each of these microservices. So are, are these doing like server-side render templates with Jinja or, or is it uh, API-based with a heavy JavaScript front-end? It um, depends on the service. So most of it is uh, is uh, rendered through Jinja. So the front-end, we have some services which are API translations of the API and they generally go out to things like our mobile app or um, also our own JavaScript frameworks for injecting data into certain pages of the product. But most of them just render Ginger templates. And that's driven by the state of IT in schools. I think it's been a year since I've last spoken to somebody running Internet Explorer 8. So, and uh, they have to work. So we are quite limited on what technologies we can adopt. And we have to be fairly vanilla in what we do. So we're still fairly server-side and we are still rendering templates and pushing them out to the schools. We've got a fair bit of um, Dynamics JavaScript going on, but it's still in the Ajax world and it's still fairly uh, basic. You know, There's no React and there's no view going on, definitely. Yeah. No, I mean, there is definitely nothing wrong with that. Like, I'm still a huge, huge, huge... Uh, you know, I very much like using... Jinja on the server side and just sprinkle in a little bit of JavaScript when you need it. I mean, that can go a really long way. 
Yeah, um, we, and as we're seeing, obviously we monitor the user agents of the the browsers that are hitting us. And as we see things like Internet Explorer 8 and Internet Explorer 10 start to vanish, then we look at Im- improving what we're doing because there are big chunks of the system which are like the registers. You know, Just taking a class register, if you imagine you've got 30 children, you're managing things like meal choices, their attendance, late reasons. It's, it's an app. It's a single-page app. And at the moment, you're rendering it and returning it to the server and getting it back. There's some JavaScript calls going on to make some of it asynchronous. But it almost calls to be a download a blob of data, do some work in it, and upload a payload, and it being a a server a client side app. Um, but because we can't guarantee what the school is running, and you know, we literally have stories of our trainers going into the attics of schools to take computers out of the box and setting them up because they've never seen one before and it's a bit old. Um, we can't guarantee what they're going to do, so we try to make it as generic as we possibly can. Yeah, especially, you know, if you need to really go back to, like, Internet Explorer 8, that is, that's getting pretty crusty at this point. It it really is. And uh, our contracts say that we will only support going back so many versions. But let's be honest, if a school's phoning up and going, we can't submit our statutory return to the government because Internet Explorer 8 doesn't work. We fix it for Internet Explorer 8 because they're our customers and you know, there's 450 children who aren't going to have their data returned, and there's a school who is not going to get their funding correct. So we, we, um, we try to be as accommodating as we possibly can, because really we're in it for to making life better for schools. That's what we're there to do. Yeah, sometimes you know, as a CTO or developer, you just need to bite the bullet and accept that that's the situation that you need to account for. Yeah, and. Uh, and, you know, ser- serving the school is the paramount thing of everything we're doing. All the decisions we make is about making things better for the school. Because un- you know, unlike most co- you know, companies, we- we're doing something that's not that high profit, really, and fairly public service. And it's all about making sure that the experience to educate children is better. Yeah, no, I think that's awesome. And if it, if it means IE8 compatibility, so be it. <laughs> yes, although I won't be saying that next time I'm trying to make something work in IE8. <laughs> right. How do you exactly. test that? <laughs> yeah, you have to have a, a virtual machine. So you mentioned that, uh, you know, you are using Docker in development. You have Python up and running. You have Flask up and running. You use Postgres for your database. Uh, are there any other technologies that you use that's a part of your stack besides the SOAP server? Um, we try to cut out as many dependencies as we can. So, so we got Zoop as at the core. Zoop's all running inside this this um, iron circle of uh, EC2 security groups um, in the center of the stack. Uh, on the outside, then we got all these Flask services. The Flask services are currently all running in Fargate, so they're all just Docker containers in Fargate. And at the edge, we have Redis but not too much Redis, just just mainly for session storage. And then we we use um, CloudFront for a CDN. And that's about it in terms of technologies. We try to keep it quite quite laid down. And in fact, in the last week, the one of the biggest changes we've made is remove the reliance on Redis across our microservices. So now only one microservice requires Red, the Redis session cache to be present. So when it comes to doing that, the session server side with Redis, uh, what made you choose that instead of just using signed cookies? Um, the ability to log people out on the, on the server side. It's probably the, 
the big ones. So we, the problem when you got signed cookies is it becomes more difficult to invalidate a session and session interception and things. So from our point of view, keeping hold of that session and ensuring that we are in full control of it was quite important to us. So having that server-side session means that I can just go in and kill all the sessions and it's not as good an experience for the user and actually it's a bit more of a a pain for us because we've really looked at using something like JWT for the sessioning. But we always come back to if I need to log out every user in a school, I can log out every user in a school and I can do it in a very easy way and I can report on who's logged in and I can do this, this work. And I know I can do it with JWT. I know I can do other thing, you know, other technologies to do it with signed cookies. But that central store of a session is actually probably the simplest way we can of uh, having that and, and being able to just kill it. Yeah. Now, it sounds like you guys have things set up the way they need to be. So when it comes to the rest of your tech stack, uh, you did not mention Celery, which is a little surprising to me. Are you using something else for background workers? Uh, we don't really have background workers at the moment everything's done synchronously which is um shocking and probably something we're going to change uh, we do have one queued system but we looked at salary and actually the overhead of salary wasn't was a bit higher than we'd like in terms of what app it was in and how big it was in terms of having two instances of the, of the same code base running so we actually wrote our own implementation of a queue manager, and it's about that. The, the processing ends about a hundred lines of code for that. I can see us needing Celery in the future because there are certain parts of the app which are still in Flask that we're going to want to rewrite. Things like comms handling, and uh, that's crying out to be Celery. Yeah, that makes sense. Although Celery, you know, it does come with its own baggage, right? It's like you need some type of of service to back that so it's like you're back to using redis or RabbitMQ or something like that yeah and uh i'm a big fan of things like rabbit it's uh you know that uh, deterministic service broker is uh, quite a nice model but very heavyweight for everything we got at the moment so earlier you mentioned that your profits are pretty thin so is this like um is this a paid application that schools just sign up for uh yes so no no we we make a profit and the the, you know, the company's sound but you know the the mo a large school will not be paying what most development shops are paying for their jira instance to have the system that manages their entire school so th this is if you imagine what scholar pack and our competitors are we are the sales force of your school and you know, your entire school life runs around us but you you're not paying Salesforce money. In fact, I think we pay more a month for Salesforce than our larger school pays for us per year. And uh, oh wow! And that makes it quite an interesting thing to deliver because the market is set by there's a dominant player in the market and who have I think they're just under eighty percent market share now, and they were first to market and they they are the Hoover of our our industry and you know. Or, or there are a few companies competing to get into the space, but we're all trying to uh, basically just take down the, the big player. And the big player makes you have a server in your school running a C-sharp.net app and having to maintain your own hardware and your own databases. So it's not a hard sell, but it's a slow sell because schools assume they need this and assume they have to stay with it. 
Yeah, it sounds like a, a tough environment to get into. I forget where I read some quote. It's like, it's very hard to have three top tier platforms be successful. Usually it's like one that grabs like the 80%, another that grabs a big chunk of that, and then a whole bunch of people just like trying to get in there. Yeah, and what what you normally find in these things, you've got the guy who grabs the, the big share of the market, like the first market, and then you've got a couple, the, the next guy who has the, sort of does the same thing, but a little bit better. And then you get your innovator who comes in afterwards. So I think, well, Facebook's your classic example of that. So you've got, um, I'm trying to think what you had first, but then you just like, some like Friends Reunited or we had in the UK or various platforms like that. And then you get MySpace come in who sort of did a better job of it. And then Facebook come around and Facebook is innovative, but the space they're in isn't. They just took a space that was somebody else was already dominant in, but they did it better. And that's what we're hoping to do is to be the better experience for schools. And the entire group is set up to be, you know, I think we're not a B Corp because we don't really have B Corps in the UK, but most of us who are involved are actually pushing to have some sort of social good. We're not in it to be rich and famous and most of us could earn more money going somewhere else. But it's about writing something that makes a difference in the lives of children. And uh, and we want to do it by being innovative and providing the best service to the schools. But at the moment, they're already willing to pay the price that they're paying for the current incumbent. And No, that's awesome, though, that you're doing all of that. And it's also, you know, you're now using a tech stack that you're comfortable with. So you'll be able to iterate very quickly on new features and, you know, differentiate yourself. That's that's good stuff. Yeah, and... Uh, and also with the the work we're doing, take advantage of the fact that it's, you know, ridiculous numbers of requests per second at 9 a.m., zero requests per second at 9 p.m. And make the stack elastic and try and uh, squeeze the squeeze the cost base so that we can be more profitable and uh, deliver more features for schools and employ more developers. And that leads us really well into um, AWS and, and Fargate. So... Actually, before we get into that, real quick, sorry. The reason I asked you about the payment was, like, which payment gateway are you using? Uh, we don't use payment gateways at the moment. Hmm. Because Tell the, me more. Um, the, the, the schools pay for us. Um, we tried setting up um, credit card payment, and uh, less than 1% of our users were willing to do it. The majority of our payments are still by check. Wow. I mean, I guess in a way that's that's fantastic because now you don't really need... Well, I mean, do you have any like billing logging built into your app on the back end or no? Uh, no, at the moment, everything's done on annual, sort of an annual subscription, which is what the, the market... Again, we're back to what the incumbent did. So we're, the market expects to have a an annual bill, usually tied to the academic year or the financial year. And you no, know, this is the bill. This is when it becomes due and they pay us. Um you know, we're looking at different things in the app, which will probably require some more ongoing payment, like um, like sending text messages and things like that, where there isn't a defined price. Although then we tried a pay-as-you-go model for that, and we came back to annual billing or the sort of a, a bundle-tiered model. So the market isn't really ready for ongoing payment, and they want to pay by check. Right. That's kind of cool. I mean, it keeps your app a little bit more easy to reason about because yeah, as you may, I was going to say like, you know, as you may guess, like once you start dealing with credit cards and all that stuff, like that's, 
that is a high amount of complexity. Yeah, well, my, my previous job, I was head of development for an insurance company. So I spent a lot of my life worrying about credit card payments and uh, direct debits. And uh, it's a nice not to have to at the moment, although I can see us doing a parent payment system at some point in the next year, and that will be an interesting development. Yeah, for sure. So speaking of uh, development, do you want to just talk a little bit now about the deployment aspect of this code base? Like you mentioned AWS and Fargate. Do you want to go into like why you picked that and, and how it's working out for you? It's probably the way to describe how we got to where we are is to describe where we were. So three years ago, we were in a, a private cloud, as people like to euphemistically call it. We were paying somebody to have a load of servers running VMware in a data center, and we had our pet servers, which were just CentOS stacks. And they were in, they were rigid, and we were running at a capacity. We were struggling to scale. We were struggling to build things, and we didn't want to be stuck there anymore. And also, we pay a fixed amount. And you know, at the moment, no one's logged into the system. Over Christmas, there will be nobody logged into the system. Over the summer, nobody logs in. And we don't get any benefit from that. So we are aiming to get to a point where we can make the, the system scale elastically, which then pushes you to cloud. Um, I've got a background in AWS from previous employers. Um, so is my solutions architect. Um, the group we are now part of, and actually we got bought by the group whilst we were making these decisions, uh, went through a similar transition and they were in GCP. So we were looking at how could we choose a cloud host that would give us the elasticity we wanted and the security and the features. We initially went to look at um, GCP because it's nice. We got a lot of experience with it in the group. I've used it before. I had a DevOps has used it before. Um, and then there was this sticking point when we were looking to build the stack and we realized that point in time recovery wasn't available in Cloud SQL. And you look and there are solutions available, but then everything becomes a kludge. RDS has it. RDS is mature. RDS just works. So RDS puts us straight into AWS. And you don't want to be adding the complexity of multi-cloud. So GCP might be best in class for Kubernetes and AWS might be best in class for database. But I don't want to be bridging our application server to our databases across the internet. So application follows the database in, and then we're looking at, well, you know, the plan was to go Docker and Kubernetes for the new world, the old world ZOP. So that has to be compute and computes compute. So, you, you know, the VMs running Linux with, a, with an install of ZOP on there, which we used to, we manage, we've, you know, we're fairly, you know, we're probably the world's expert on running ZOP now. We're in AWS. Kubernetes is not particularly well-formed, especially two years ago when we were making these decisions in AWS. And they announced this thing called Fargate. So we decided to have a go with that because we tried ECS and that wasn't particularly nice. The way it scales its underlying compute layer wasn't logical. We scale dramatically. That didn't work for us. Having two scalers working together didn't really help us. So Fargate's just got this promise of you just scale out forever and scale back in. It's not quite that, but you don't worry about scaling your compute layer. Your Docker containers, in effect, are your compute layer, and it just fits quite nicely for us. I think it possibly, in terms of the 
the types of services we have. We don't have a huge amount of interdependence of scaling between different services. So the fact that we can just scale out a Fargate cluster as the demand on that Fargate cluster requires it is good for us. And we don't worry about scaling out the compute. We just scale out the Docker containers and our sort of our boundary service, which we call euphemistically the wrapper, that sits there on overnight it'll be running on two instances and 9am will be running on 100 instances and then it'll scale back down to 50 throughout the day and and Fargate makes that work for us and it's been it's been amazing for us so how does that work with Fargate so I've actually never really run it in production do you just want to give like a TLDR on what it allows you to pull off if you imagine your docker container well Fargate's got some like all these things has their own terminology and their own ideas but effectively you just go i want to run these containers together and i know i want no at any point i'll need five of these and one of these and two of these if you need to scale up you can either use their auto scalers based on their their metrics or write your own scalers and we've had to write our own scalers in many cases um you just go i now want 12 instances not two and you don't worry about if I'm running 12 instances, I need to have this many machines underneath. I, so I, don't, I need to scale out the compute layer. You just tell Fargate, give us another 10 instances, and it spins up 10 more Docker containers. It just it just fires up 10 more of your Docker containers running, much like you would in any of the these container architectures, except you just don't worry about the compute at all. It just scales out for you. Right, so it's almost like like a Kubernetes, but instead of having to set up the servers yourself to run it on, you just don't even deal with it. Yes, and and you know the if you go for what what do they call it in um, GKE, so Google Kubernetes engine, or if you go for the what are they is EKS, so the mm-hmm. ECS Kubernetes service in AWS, they take care of all the Kubernetes management. But still, you're writing your pods, and you got your you're having to manage your nodes and your pods and your groups, and for our sister company, that makes sense because they do have services which sort of depend on each other. So if I'm scaling out, if I want 10 of these, I need five of these. And the Kubernetes stuff makes that quite nice because they can use things like Helm to provision their architecture. But for us, we've got we've got very few, almost quite, you know, I, you know, my belief on how microservices should be architected and, and my, my team possibly doesn't sit well with other people who believe how our microservices should be architected and we don't have that many we have a couple of domain specific services which scale almost independently and are all able to scale independently and that fits quite nicely with the way fargate you just scale your compute and it just goes and you don't worry about how the bottom the bottom runs I can see us running Kubernetes at some point in the future for some of our stack. But at the moment, and it's almost a happy accident, Fargate really matches what we want. It's almost like serverless containers, if that makes sense. Yeah. But now when it comes to setting up these services to run on Fargate, do you still need to like decide um, like what type of memory or even CPU resources that you want to allocate to that container? Uh, yes. So, you, so when you first... Yeah, so when you first set up your 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 task, I, I, my DevOps team are now shouting down at the mic, but there's um, 
you you set up your task and you say this is going to have this many cores and this much mem- memory and each of your instances has is just this many cores and this much memory you can go down to like quarter of a cpu in terms of this definition and and then every time you go give me more it gives you just stamps out another one core one gig of ram one core one gig of ram one core one gig of ram that's a pretty nice setup yeah. Yeah. And so it's like you, you can still fine tune what you want, but you just don't have to deal with setting it up. Yeah. And uh, and I think if I need if we needed more fine grain control, it would be really annoying. But for us, it's it's really really simple. It's just a JSON file to specify your task definitions. Um, those are all pumped through um, pumped through Jenkins when we use it for our deployment. Uh, we use Terraform to to set up our environments and we, so we can just roll out new new Fargate clusters using Terraform when we've got new services and enables us to have repeatability across the stack. Right. So do you, do you run all of this in one availability zone or is it scaled out? Uh, it's all run out of the UK region. So so it's in th- is it, three availability zones that across the UK. I, I, I always get my, he- my head confused around what they mean by availability zones and regions, but... It's all based in the. G- it's all in the UK. Nothing ever leaves the UK, but it has three availability zones, and we run across all three of those. So everything's balanced across the three. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty cool setup. And AWS does allow you to get away with a lot when it comes to that. Like there's just so many things you don't need to think about. Yeah, the the thing you will find if you get started in Fargate and you want to do what we do, there's a hard limit of fifty Fargate instances per account, um, unless you talk to your account manager. And when you go. Uh, can we have 300? They they sort of start asking interesting questions. But uh, obviously, mm. with the way we scale overnight, you know, our, our instances are actually in the region of two CPUs, one gig of RAM for most of our services because we don't need that much compute overnight. So we like to go down to a very small scale whilst all the schools are off. But during the day, we need a lot of compute. So we prefer to have fewer smaller instances overnight and then a lot of smaller instances in the day because that that elasticity really works for what we want to do so when it comes to during the day and you spin up all these smaller instances like do you know exactly how many servers do you usually cap it at um we have a we have a cap to make sure it doesn't run away um but we've written our own scaler so we actually because of the the level of the slew we especially our boundary router which does all the traffic for the system, uh, we know that it's going to be hammered at 9 a.m., so we pre-warm it. So for the first hour before that spike, we start spinning up more instances. So we're not having to get a Fargate to spin up 100 instances in one go because we have found problems with scaling from 2 to 100 in one go. So we pre-warm it over a period. Um but we have a hard limit set in there based on sort of like a high watermark of where we've been in the last few weeks. We will tune that top level to make sure we don't just go up to 600 instances. Right. So is is that 9 a.m. or whatever? Is that your peak time? Yeah, nine. nine so 10 to 9 to 9.15, we will we will see 90% increase in load from 8.30. The load at 8.30 will be 10% of the load at 9 a.m. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a big difference. Yeah. And uh, it's it's fun to watch. You can actually all the graphs. You can just see this um, this exponential curve to infinity at uh, nine a.m. And it's almost always 
is exactly 9am. And that's all your teachers coming in, logging in, taking their class registers. <laughs> so do you actually have like a, you know, like a monitor or a dashboard in the office that you can just look at? Uh, we have um, many. We've got plenty of radi- information radiators dotted around with various metrics and, uh, and alerts. So at uh, 9am, 9, 9 you'll see the ops team sat there looking at the tellies on the wall going, is it okay? What's our load looking like? And generally monitoring requests per host. That's our main re- thing on the boundary is we scale on requests per host. Um, and you know, I think we scale out at 1,500 requests per instance. Um, then we add more. And then we're also monitoring the application, the Zope application server loads and the database server loads and things like you know, number of queries, long-running queries at 9 a.m. because we really can't afford anything to happen at 9 a.m. Right. So do you want to go into a little bit then on the tools that you use for the monitoring and error reporting and metrics and stuff? Yeah, so monitoring um, is mostly Datadog because it just works. And when we adopted it, we didn't have the resources to uh, to manage an Elk stack. We played with Elk for a little while, um, but it was just taking up so much time. And out of the box, you just got such good reporting from Datadog that we've stuck with them for a while. We are finding that now we're in more containerized, uh, Datadog really doesn't do that as well as we'd like. So we've now got some dashboards which are just using, what, what do they call it, CloudWatch. So it's AWS CloudWatch for the container stuff, Datadog for everything else. And uh, and it works quite nicely. They, uh, Datadog just integrates directly into Slack. So we've got Slack channels with status alerts. Uh, we push those straight into Jira for our... Um, error logging and uh, ticket management. And it's, it's just quite a nice experience. We, you know, again, we try to minimize the number of things that are in flight and the number of technologies that we use. Right. So if you had to estimate in a given maybe day or if that's too fine green, like a week, you know, like how many error reports are you guys getting? Oh, God. Um, uh, it depends. Hundreds a day is probably the, the truth. How many of them are genuine? We're getting better. We're spending a lot of time focusing down. We got the legacy. The legacy stack was written when we could be more hands-on looking after schools. So the the legacy stuff possibly gives more errors than we're really comfortable with. But generally, we're at the point now where if we get an error, we try to deal with it. We we get duplicates, so we're probably getting a couple of hundred a day but most of those will be duplicates of the same problem. Um, in terms of actual system pro- proper, there's something gone wrong. Uh, we rarely get errors now. Um, our customers are probably shouting at me because we had one incident last week, but our longest downtime that in the three and a half years I've been with a company has been 35 minutes uh, during during school time, and that was really bad. Generally, if you have an issue, it's dealt with within minutes. Wow, that's really impressive, actually, considering the scale that you guys run at a half an hour of downtime in a couple of years. Yeah, I'm. Uh, it's very good. I've got a lot of gray hairs now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, it sounds like at least your your reporting and and metrics and things like that, the system you've set up, at least helps you identify when there's a problem. Yeah, and we really focused on building the metrics around what we're working on, so we don't have we don't have hundreds of dashboards, we don't have hundreds of alerts. We create alerts around the work we're doing and we set meaningful 
meaningful thresholds on them as we're working. So if we roll out a new service, then you know we'll probably get spurious alerts and spurious errors, and the devs will make sure that the logging levels in in the traceback from the system is set appropriately, so the so the actual logs contain only useful information. And the same with the, the reporting thresholds. If things are going hitting a spike at this time every day, then we'll make sure that that is expected behavior and doesn't alert us at, if that behavior occurs. Because you know, there's no point having alarms and alerts that you just accept, because that means you miss the ones that you don't want to accept. Yeah, exactly. So when it comes to switching gears a little bit here, like when it comes to deployment, do you just want to walk us through what it's like for a developer to push code from their dev box into like getting uh, up in production? Yeah, um, well, there are two experiences. Uh, the Zope experience is actually is actually a dream. The, the guys who developed Zope did a really good job of that. Um, there's some really good things in Zope that probably we should go back and revisit and push out to other frameworks. But if you if you're working in Zope, you you do your development work. It goes to the dev server. It then has a thing it calls a syncer. You just sync your code into into your testing environment. Once that's happy, you just press a button and it syncs it to all the production machines. And that does it with no downtime and no restart. It just loads it into memory and, and off it goes. Uh, so your developer will be doing their work. We we have a PR process. Goes through a PR. Goes to the test team on the test server. The testers would then sign off that it does what we expect it to do. They press a button, or somebody presses a button, usually the ops guys, and then that's it, it's live. And we'll do that a couple of times a day, probably on the Zope stuff, because we don't want we don't want changes lying around. We want it out the door as soon as we possibly can. Yeah, that's an awesome development to production and that pipeline, I guess you can say. Like zero downtime, you just push a button and it's basically done. It's really slick. It's like the, you know, you read the books, the DevOps books of the dream, and that is it's like the dream. There's a button called sync and off it goes. And that's it. It's in all your schools on all your servers. And it, it just sort of works. When it doesn't work, it's exciting because it's a bit old now. But, you know, most of the time, um, touch wood, we've not had any issues with that in a long time. On the other side of the tree, so we've got the Flask deployment. Obviously, that's all Docker containers. The way we work at the moment is we, we try to make do everything test-driven. So everything should have a good degree of unit test coverage. I'm not going to claim 100%, but you know we we we've got a good set of meaningful unit tests. So the developer will do their work. They'll then do a PR. The PR being merged into develop will then trigger a build on our Jenkins server. The Jenkins server then passes or fails the build. If it passes the build, that will get deployed onto our testing environment. Once it passes the test um, that'll then get a PR into master. Master will then be merged in, will then prompt a Jenkins build, and then Jenkins will push out the push that out to live if it passes. But oh, there's, there's a, a step where we press a button still to go, this can go live, but Jenkins builds the artifact and we then go deploy it. And then deployment is, you know, it's Fargate. So Amazon provide your own container repository, so part of the build step is Jenkins will push the Docker container into the into the repository. It'll then prompt all the task definitions to be updated to the latest version, and then Fargate does a rolling release. So it'll then age out 
the, the containers and age in the new ones and stop sending requests to the ALB, so the application load balancer, to the old instances. So you sort of drain the old instances down whilst the new instances are coming up. So you'll have a short period where you might have more instances running than you need, but it'll just swap them out. And, and that works quite nicely. No, that's a really good pipeline. So a lot of uh, clients that I deal with, I mean, they're not using Fargate, but that process is very similar. So it does bring some challenges though, right? It's like when you're dealing with a rolling restart, there's going to be that point where the old code base is running as well as the new code base. And now it's like you need to kind of be very careful with uh, database changes, right? Because it needs to work with like both versions of the application for some amount of time. Is that something you guys deal with on a regular basis or no? Um, we try to make um, all database changes idempotent so that it, you know, we, we definitely not going to be rolling the same changes out over and over again. We also try to design changes to be summative so we don't generally get massive changes to a structure of a table so that anything you add is extra. So what was there will work even with even with the new columns and new, and new data types. Obviously, as what we do is mainly around performing work on data and the data the school holds can be quite esoteric and we, we have no control on that. We don't do much where we actually change data in the databases. It's very slow changes to the structures and as I say, it generally sums on top. If there's a change that requires an actual structure change and lots of code to be synchronized together, we would treat that as an out-of-hours downtime required change. And therefore, we would you know, schedule it in, inform the schools, and then put messages up on the on the boundary router so you can't get into the system at all, and then release it without without traffic through the site. Those tend to happen infrequently, and we tend to do them late at night when no one's using the system anyway. Yeah, I was just going to say, like that seems like a prime opportunity maybe to do your deploy, you know, on like a, a Friday night or something, just so you have the whole weekend just in case. Yeah, and as we do most of our code changes, um, well, one thing I did mention is all the new stuff is always behind a feature toggle, so it doesn't. If it goes into live, it feature toggles in and out. So we, so the deployment of the the point of the container usually doesn't deploy the code as well. The, the app actually change the behavior. We have to set a key to make that work. Um, so we try to make everything deployable ahead of time. So traffic is going through it ahead of time. And we really focus down on if this is a structure change that requires downtime, that it's only the structure change that requires downtime as a thing deployed at that point. Because I don't want to be in the state where we are testing 20 features it needs to be that one change right yeah no i i really love the idea of feature flags unfortunately at least i found that uh they're awesome in practice but it it seems to add a pretty decent amount of developer friction right it, it's kind of a lot of code to get all of that set up what, what's it been like for you it's been it's been quite easy really i think part of my background is um i'm, I'm a certified scrum master and i do a lot of scrum training for people and what we've worked on a lot with our teams is making them own the development process. So if this isn't my development process, and in terms of architectures, they're not my architectures. The The team are very active in developing these things and feel a great sense of ownership. So we're at the point now where they will demand feature flags and they will demand doing the extra work to put them in. And they will go sometimes to great lengths to ensure they can feature flag something. We released you know, this 
change where we no longer required Redis for our changes, we couldn't feature flag that because at that point we were using Redis to sort the feature flags. And that caused quite a bit of debate and a bit of um, discussion and and soul searching in some quarters around could we release this without a feature flag in it? And we decided we could. But it's so ingrained in the way they work now that they will make sure a feature flag goes in. So that the you know, there might be an extra bit of thought process, but they're also ingrained in that thought process that it's just BAU for them. Mm-hmm. So what you were talking about, it's like almost like a company policy dictates the architecture of your application and it just makes you think about things in a certain way. Like it just leads to better code in the end. Yeah, and um, you know, the best the best architectures evolve around the solution. So, you know, I we have a solution architect and probably technically I act as a enterprise architect as a as the CTO. But most of our conversations around architecture are, this is my idea. What do you think? Tell me why I'm wrong. Why should we use this? Why shouldn't we use this? Um, we've just flipped from using, I think we were using REST Plus for some of our REST APIs and really didn't like it. So now we're using connection. Uh, and that was because you know we had a conversation, people didn't like it, somebody else found connection, somebody played with something on the weekend, came in, and now we're using connection because the team liked it and the team adopted it. Interesting. I tried to keep a pulse on the Flask community, but I have not heard of that framework or library. How does that compare to things like Flask Classful? It starts from the open API spec. So you give it a an open API.yaml and it sort of does all your validation and routing based on the YAML you give it with a couple of extra decorators in there. Um, the problem we were finding, we were using REST Plus before reasons and that was nice because that gives you the swagger docs. It generates the open API docs straight from your endpoints. But we were we were working a lot more with integrators who are coming in and sort of there's a whole ecosystem of systems that hang around schools, MISs now. And we found ourselves designing the API collaboratively with an integrator, working in the open API docs, and then having to implement it. And for Flask REST, in Flask REST Plus, that was a lot of code. There's all these serializers. There's a lot of things going on. Connection, you give it this this YAML file. You add some extra, what are basically comments, but connection understands to the YAML. And then you just write your controllers. And suddenly that gives you all your validation, your correct responses, your correct routing, your correct work. And all you're doing is just going, is just, it's just sort of tying back the the data to the return in the in the decorator you've described, and then you're not worrying about any of the restful part of it at all. Connection does it for you, and it's been really nice. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I'm gonna have to go check that one out after this call because I have not heard of it before. It uh, I, it was a, a talk at PyCon UK this year where um just chatting with one of the uh, the guys. I can't remember what he was talking about. Nothing to do with RESTful APIs. And he just said, if you're writing a RESTful API, look at connection. And I did. And it's, we, we've we been, we're writing a new parents app and we've been collaboratively developing the spec with the app provider. And on the back of that, they've, um, the, we've got this open API doc that's been generated. But very early in it, we chucked, the open API doc into connection with some mock data and threw it into Heroku. And we've had a working mock API 
just around the open API doc more or less from day one and it's been amazing and that is now the start of the microservice I think within four days we went from nothing to having a microservice serving data from the internal API to the to the real world um, just using connection Wow yeah that's a really impressive turnaround time given you know what you're dealing with it's not just like a like a to-do simple app you know yeah it's uh, it, it impressed me and I'm and I'm I'm old and jaded, so you know, <laughs> hard to impress. Right. So speaking of uh, things that'll make you old, so how do you deal with like disasters and you know unexpected events? And I, I know you mentioned that you do those point backups with RDS. Do you have anything else going on backup wise? Um, everything. Well, obviously everything's in Git. Are we? Everything's a deterministic build. We use pipenv, which is probably worth mentioning for our for our. Um, dependency management so that we got the lock files so so everything's deterministic we we should know what's in live we actually ha- we actually have the git commit hash of the of the commit that led to the docker container in the docker container name so we can tie everything back um, so we are fairly confident at any point with what's running in live uh, so we're quite happy we can get back to a running state for those services uh, the Zope stuff's backed up. Well, it's we keep its structure in a continue in a raided file system, and it is backed up daily. And we ship everything everywhere, so we have backups going all over the shop, so we can we can recover within minutes from most things. Um, saying that now, something's going to explode, isn't it? Um, yeah, sorry in advance. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, what about like user uploaded content? Where does that get backed up? Or do you not even have that? Um, so in effect, when you buy Scholar Pack, you're buying a blank system and every piece of data in there is yours. So we, you know, in fact, our contracts set to say we are data processors only. We have no actual legal rights to your data in any way, shape or form. That's probably the, we have an entire team who deal with unscrewing the mess that schools make of their own data at times. So we actively log every change to every table in the database. So not only do we have point in time recovery where we can roll data back, we have a table or set of tables which log which user at which time has changed what data from what to what with what query. So I can, if you phone up and go, this staff member's vanished, you've lost him. We can go, actually, it was Margaret deleted him at 3 a.m. or 3 p.m. yesterday afternoon. And and uh, this was, they were on this page. And we can, because we have the data before and the data after and the query, we can roll back almost any change um, quite quickly. We have standard queries, which allow us just to run a, an instruction against that table if we find the change. And that will just revert that back um, obviously, we need written permission from the head teacher of the school before we'll do that. But we can recover almost any change on that system now. Wow, that's awesome! At the same time, probably scary from a tech point of view too, right? It's like those tables must get uh, a tremendous amount of rights to them. Oh God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, if you're able to share this, do you, can you go into what size uh, RDS instance that you're running? Uh, we are. I. I can't tell you what size the disks are, 
um, but not as big as you'd expect because although we have a lot of schools, they don't have that much data and the data that changes isn't that frequent. So they're not uploading videos, they're changing people's names. So it's bytes of data is changing. Um, we're currently running on T3 2XLs. There are 10 T3 2XLs running at the moment. Do you know offhand like number of CPUs and memory on those servers? I don't, I don't know off the top of my head. I th- I can't. Is that the 8 CPU or the 4 CPU box? I think that's the 8 CPU box. Um, okay. We're looking at downsizing them all to the 4 CPU box because we're running at about 30% load most of the time on that at the moment. And then for, well, maybe this is praying too deep, but like what, what does your payments look like per month on AWS? Uh, too much <laughs> is the honest answer. Um, it's probably... I probably get in trouble for telling you the exact numbers, uh, but I'm hoping to save about sixty percent on that in January. So we're hoping to shave several thousands of pounds off it in January because we're doing a sort of a whole set of work on resizing and optimizing certain key paths. Right. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty big win if you can make a change like that. Yeah, I'll be saving a developer's salary, at least a developer's salary a month on our AWS bill. Yeah, it's crazy how that works on the cloud it's like you get all these great things but it's pretty expensive but at the same time it's like it's worth it you know yeah, and then you have that month where a developer leaves a flag on and before you know it you spend fourteen hundred dollars on logs <laughs> <laughs> yeah not that that's happened to me but <laughs> yeah i can't think of any off the top of my head but i know there's these crazy stories out there it's like you know, I went to bed, then I woke up and my AWS bill was like $58,000 when it was like normally like 18 cents a month or something. Yeah, there was, um, was it a Brazilian startup who hadn't thought about how a certain feature in GCP worked and they started a cloud for, uh, a crowdfunder and for every person making a request for the, to buy the crowdfunder, it was doubling the cost of every request until they actually spent the entire crowdfunder just transact processing the crowdfunder and before they took oh, it off God. in about in about four days they burned through the entire money they'd raised because they just hadn't architected it in a, in a logical way but so yeah two days a month i must spend just going through the aws bills and and checking where we are against the previous month and does the spend look about right and we me and my head of ops have a half monthly check-in where we are on the spend to make sure that nothing has got turned on or there's a database running or there's something just been spun up and forgotten about because there's a the neat trick rds if you turn shut an rds instance down it'll restart itself after seven days either you've got to go in every seven days and stop it or delete it you you know it's not a <laughs> it's a little one that catches you out yeah that is not a workflow i've done usually it's like if i'm gonna get rid of it i just go and terminate it not just stop it uh, some sometimes you you're doing some processing on some logs, so you, we have to write our own logging. We can't use something like um, Google Analytics because of the nature of the data we hold. So we've written our own internal version of that, and that goes to an instance. And we want to do some work on that data. So our our BI team took a snapshot and spun that up, and then shut it down, and then went away and came back, and it was running again. We we noticed after a day, thankfully, but. Yeah, you definitely need to keep uh, keep up with that. And it sounds like you're doing a great job with those two days a month checking in. Like you really do need to keep up with that. Yeah, I'm not sure our chief financial officer would agree, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
uh, we're pretty much wrapping up here at the end. Uh, do you want to share maybe your best tips and, and lessons learned for building this type of application? I suppose the best tip is build what works. So don't go out and try and design the perfect architecture and spend months working out what the best language is and, and you know what the ideal world looks like. Look at what you've got and what you want to achieve and how do I get there? So we're Python, not because I'm a massive Python fan. I mean, I like Python, but, you know, I've done Java and PHP and God knows what else. I spent 10 years doing Fortran. So, you know, Python's not a given, but we were on Zope, which was Python. And the developers who had new Python, so we went Python. And you know, Docker works for us because it works. But if it didn't work, we'd have thrown it away and done something else. So do what works, not do what the latest trend says you should do. Yeah. No, I think that's a big problem in our industry, and I'm guilty of it also. It's so so easy just to get involved with that, right? It's like you look at something on Hacker News, and they're like, well, you know, go check this out. And then it's like you follow the carrot to that. The one that winds me up is microservices. If you read the original papers from ThoughtWorks on what a microservice is, it's that micro is the scope not the size. And then you have these hours of arguments going, well, there's too many lines of code in your microservice. It needs to be small. It needs to be doing this. Actually, it's the, it's what it looks after. So, and what it looks, what it looks after is down to you. It's your domain. So for us, that might be student, admin, staff, and those might be pretty large services in their own right, but they're still microservices because they have a micro scope of control. So I prefer the term single responsibility service. And people get really wedded to that is the, you know, that is how you build a microservice and we're we doing it wrong. There is no wrong. There is only the thing that works. And you can have a perfect solution, but it doesn't matter if you have no customers. You're better building something that works that customers can use and then fixing the rough edges later than building your perfect thing that that just sits in the corner and and people go oh that's very pretty yeah no very well put and i 100 percent agree with all of that so on that note though um about maybe building perfect things and getting stuck perhaps so have you made any mistakes in this project that you've eventually corrected um yes many uh probably some of the biggest mistakes were around how we structured the project early on so we got stuck on some of the early services because the the idea of the of the rewrite. So we we we're doing your traditional Martin Fowler sweating the monolith approach where we've locked Zope in the center. We've put a, a ring of flask around it. So you can't get to Zope without going through flask. And then we're taking bits of Zope out and re and re-implementing them in flask. And so over time the user can't tell what's Zope and what's flask. And you know we'll just have more flask than Zope until some point in probably over the next five years. The first bit of functionality we chose to write, we got too fixated on making it perfect. And instead of having something that worked like the original, we try to make it better than the original, which meant that we never release. Um, it's it's live now. And it got it got released actually after several of the other services we wrote after it, because we spent so long trying to 
work out what the better version would look like. It then required a lot of time with user testing, a lot of time with requirements gathering, working groups to work out how this flow should work. And what we actually just wanted is the, the same broom, but running in Flask. Well, it seems like you ended up in uh, a good spot now and lessons learned. Yeah, and we're motoring now, so that's good. <laughs> yep. So Gareth, thanks so much for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Yep, thank you for your time. And uh, before we wrap this up, but do you have any links that you want to share? Maybe to your site, Twitter, GitHub profiles, stuff like that? Uh, if you want to find me online, the best place to go is monkey.co.uk. So that's M-U-N-C-I.co.uk, which is a funny way, Welsh way of spelling monkey. And uh, you'll find all my social media stuff on there and probably soon some blogs and things around uh, agile practices. Nice. Yeah, I definitely want to check that out once you start writing that. And uh, on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.